And we are continuing our series on the book of Esther uh, today. I, I've, I mentioned it to a couple people as they were coming in or uh, just over the last few weeks. I have never taught through the entirety of the book of Esther, uh, but the, I've, I've taught some principles. And chapter 4 has probably the most famous book, I mean famous quote out of the book of Esther uh, when, when Mordecai challenges Esther and he says, you know, maybe God put you here for such a time as this. And I've, I've heard that out of Esther for all of my life, but now to actually approach it uh, with understanding the depth of the book and the depth of the story, it's to me uh, really impactful. And what we're talking about today is, is really this and what Mordecai brings up, this defining moment for Esther and where she's at, and how she got to where she was. And if you remember, as we started this story, we've talked about, we're using uh, Queen's Gambit, this idea of a a chess match that plays out over these 10 chapters in this story of the book of Esther, and how God is, not only is chess a game of strategy, stages, and sacrifice, but this story, and God himself, and how he works as a God that works with a strategy, always has a plan. He works in stages, and sometimes moves happen in our life that we can't understand, and then all of a sudden we see it later in the game. And ultimately, of course, he is a God of sacrifice uh, that is willing to work for us and to prepare a way for us to have reconciliation and redemption and hope in our world. And we are going to see, a. I think in this chapter right now, we're kind of moving from the, we've introduced all the characters Everybody is kind of in the story, so now we're kind of moving to the middle stage of the game uh, that we're seeing in the book of Esther. And just to remind you, the characters, if you're, if you're just catching back up with us, uh, in the very first chapter, we learned about a principled but sacrificial pawn, the, the queen Vashti, uh, who Esther eventually replaced, and she was a, 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 a casualty of a very unjust uh, system and a very unjust king. And then we, we met this simple-minded king called Ahasuerus, who uh, the more we read this story, we realize he, all you got to do is like give him a little nudge in a direction. He's like, all right, I'll go try this out. Go this. He is very simple-minded and very controllable. And then we learned a few weeks ago about uh, what we call the shrewd knight Mordecai, who's one of the heroes of the story. Uh, he is Esther's basically adopted father, cousin, from what we understand in Scripture, and he has been working behind the scenes and continues to work uh, in a lot of areas to provide protection for Esther and for the Jewish people. And then we learned about this purposeful and very plotting queen named Esther who has gotten to a position of influence, uh, and and we're going to be put in a position of, of challenge this week and see how she uses that influence. And then last week, Jared introduced you guys to this power hungry cunning guy named uh, that we uh, kind of equate to the bishop in the story always moving kind of sideways uh, a guy named Haman who uh, is out is going to be our villain in this story and I want to today's chapter chapter four uh, is kind of again a culmination as we move into the second stage so I want to recap and help you understand where we are and just remind you of a few key details. I don't know about you, but like if you've ever watched a show on Netflix, like season one, and then like the year later, season two comes out and you're like, oh, I have to go back and rewatch season one to to remember all the little things I forgot. And that's kind of what I want to do this morning before we get into this key moment is just remind you a few key things. Uh, Remember in chapter one, this king throws a party and he ends up banishing his queen Vashti because 
Uh, she would not give in to his unjust demands for her to parade around seductively in front of his friends. And our key idea that we held on to here was this idea of that our present and past pain and injustice that we experience can be an avenue for us to experience and express greater amounts of God's mercy and hope. So even though she was a victim of injustice and, and it was painful for her, actually her her being sacrificed, her making a principled stand opened up a way and a pathway for how God was going to use Queen Esther in that moment. And then the, the king goes off to war. He loses. He comes home and his advisors hold a beauty contest for him to find a new queen. And Esther, this unknown Jewish young woman of great beauty, is selected by the king to be his new queen. And the idea that we held on to here was it's not our responsibility to control every situation and determine every outcome of our life as much as we would like to, but instead realize that God can create opportunities for impact and influence in whatever position we find ourselves. And all of a sudden, Esther went from a nobody to a somebody to a big somebody, and God is going to use her in that moment. And then last week, Jared took you guys on this journey of understanding her cousin Mordecai, an official in the king's court. He uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. He gets in the good graces of the king. And then around the same time, Haman, our villain, an Agite, who is a longtime enemy of the Jews, is elevated to a high-ranking position by the king. And he finds out Mordecai is a Jew and that Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. And so Haman convinces the king to put out a decree to not only kill Mordecai, but to kill every Jew throughout the entire realm, the Persian Empire. And, and the key idea Jared drove home last week was this idea, you know, knowing God means that knowing I will be ready for whatever's going to come my way. And it, it was a beautiful picture of no matter, all of a sudden you're on the top of things and the next moment you're on the bottom. And knowing God is, is allows me to know that I will be ready whatever comes my way. Which brings us to part four today in this story, chapter four. And what we're going to see today is a, a contrast in decision-making. As Esther now has to decide what to do in her position of influence and impact to try to deal with the immense injustice that is being planned against her very people. But, but before we look at her decision-making and how she approaches a major, major decision in her life, I want us to, to look back and see how the king's lack of uh, any, any ability to make a wise decision got us to this point even to begin with. This crazy point where all of a sudden he has agreed really with almost no thought to a major genocide of an entire people group in his realm. Like, how did we get here? How did somebody who should be king and have authority should have some more forethought and insight get to the point where we are now about to approach major genocide? And because I think ultimately he is an unprincipled king. He's an unprincipled decision maker because he's making decisions. And we can go back and look at these, right? Based on momentary passion. He, did, he got mad at Vashti. He's like, you're gone. Just momentary passion. Whatever he thought in that moment. But also he's been making decisions based on his need to be fulfilled are to be validated, right? So he comes back from war, it wasn't a success, and he's like, well, bring me the young beauties. I need to feel validated. I need to feel better about myself. And that's where Esther came into the story. And then 
Thirdly, he's unprincipled because he's being guided by this self-serving counsel, this guy named Haman, who is just like, Haman's out for himself. Haman's using the king in his own way to get his own agenda done. He's not having, the king is not looking at it with wisdom. He's not looking at it with any principle. And where did all this lead? We see at the end of chapter 3, in verse 15, it said, where we left last week, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is where unprincipled leadership and unprincipled decision-making lead us. It is to confusion. And I can imagine you can look at certain circumstances in your life. Maybe it's family situation. Maybe it's in a work situation or friendship situation where because of somebody's poor, unprincipled decision-making, you ended up in a state of confusion, in a difficult place, in a place that you would rather not be. And, and it's not just a disagreement. It is you've gone somewhere and you go, we didn't have to be here. We didn't have to get here. We could have made principled decisions and changed the outcome. This king was not principled in his decision-making. He was too easily swayed by his lust and his own lacking. He was blind to the deceitfulness of those around him and never took the time to make sure his decisions were based on accurate information and wisdom. He was an impetuous and impulsive decision-maker. Whatever was most current was most important, and that's foolish. And so the key idea we're going to hold on today and talk about is this, is that the ability to make wise decisions is not found in our momentary feelings or frustrations, but on the predetermined principles that come from the wisdom of God. It is, it is this sounds very simple and very easy, like, you know what, we should build our decisions based on firm principles, firm wisdom that God has given to us, but you know what we often do? I, I know I've been guilty of this many times as I make decisions on whatever my momentary feelings are or whatever frustrations I'm dealing with or whatever I think how I can control outcomes instead of actual principles. And what we're going to see in chapter 4 is Esther is a principled decision maker. And so as we jump into this defining moment in her life and the decision she makes in this moment and how it's going to have this long-lasting and far-reaching impact for herself and many, many others, we're going to grab a few truths out of this. Now, I'm not going to read uh, verses 1 through 3, but just to give you a, an idea of what's happening, Mordecai has found out you know, that the decree has come out uh, that they're gonna, they want to kill all the Jews. And it's actually, they put a date on the calendar of when it's going to happen. And Mordecai is in mourning. He is like, ripped his clothes off. He's in sackcloth and ash, which is a, a way of showing mourning. Uh, and, and many of the Jews are also doing the same thing. They are in deep mourning. Now, you may look at this and go, you know, they just seem hopeless at this point. Like they're out of, maybe this is their way of saying, I, there's nothing we can do. But actually this sign of like putting on sackcloth and ash is, is not a sign of hopelessness. It's a sign of calling for help. It isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of meekness that says, you know what? I'm in a situation that I can't solve. I need help. I need someone to step in. And how often in our deep struggles do we still try to act like we have all the answers? That we rely on our own wisdom, our own 
knowledge. If I can just figure this out or make this happen or pull together these resources, then I can make the right decision and deal with this problem. And I want you to hear, just like Mordecai, many of us know that we are in a place that maybe sometimes we cannot solve ourselves. And what we decide in these defining moments, these deep, dark, and difficult moments of our lives where we're not feeling where we're very frustrated, we're in places that we just can't help, how we do decision-making at that point will make a difference. And I want you to understand this is not, you know, God is not looking at Mordecai and the Jews at this point like disappointed, like, oh my gosh, how did you get yourselves in this position? And he doesn't look at us. God is not disappointed in us when we ask him for help, when we need his help. He actually encourages it. He desires it, right? In in Matthew 11, 28, Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The the first principle that we've got to hold on to is this principle of, I cannot solve every problem that I have. I need help. There are times I need help from others, from God, from, from sources of wisdom and knowledge and love and understanding beyond me. And too often we keep digging the hole deeper and deeper because we think we have to be the one to solve every problem instead of being willing to rely on a community of believers a, and a God who has said, come to me when you're burdened and heavy. So next we see what's going to happen. They are mourning. They are in a state of mourning, the, the Jewish nation is. And Esther then takes notice. And in verses 4 through 8, we start to see that she gathers some information. So I, I want to read verses 4 through 8, and uh, we'll grab a couple things out of this. So verse 4 says this, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, uh, this was about Mordecai being out there mourning, the queen was greatly distressed. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatash, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hatash went to Mordecai in the open square of the city and in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So in this moment, this had to be a very distressful for Esther, right? Her cousin and literally surrogate father is out in mourning outside of the citadel, and she wants to comfort him. She sees him with this sackcloth on it, and it meant he could not enter into and come visit her because of the way what he was wearing. And she wants to comfort him, but realizes that this distress he experienced is not just some personal issue that can be fixed with some new clothes and a pat on the back. There's a much bigger, much more complex problem at hand, and one that she happens to be in a key position to deal with. Esther gets a full understanding of the situation. She heard Mordecai's call for her to do something, and now, you know what? She has a decision to make. What should she do? How should she respond? If she were to make decisions like the king has been making decisions in the past, you know what she would do? She would simply make sure she was safe and taken care of. 
She would dismiss those closest to her that seemed to be becoming a drain on her comfort and do everything she could to make sure her needs are fulfilled and her desires are validated. And this, honestly, would have been the easier thing for her to do. Distance herself from Mordecai and the rest of the Jews. Hide out in the citadel and do whatever she could to make herself invaluable to the king. It is the easy path of making decisions simply based on our momentary feelings and frustrations. It's what the king had done. Esther could have done the same thing. Thinking that we hold, if not all, then enough wisdom and understanding to make this decision. To believe that our motives are always pure. And to think that the pain that that my decisions might cause others can be rationalized away by my need of self-preservation. This is not the way of the wisdom of God. And we see that Esther pushes past this type of thinking and starts to move toward a wiser way of principled response. And we're going to see it's not as easy as it may seem in verse 9 when Esther starts to deal with reality. So this actually picks up in verse 10 and it says this, Then Esther spoke to Hattash and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, this is her response when she had finally found out what's going on, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if a man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. And then Mordecai pushes back on her. So Esther basically was like, you know what? I wish I could. But I, I'm, I'm not even seeing the king right now. And Mordecai challenges her to think deeper about principles that are involved. And verse 13 then says this, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you may escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The realities of the moment, the realities of the depth and difficulty of this decision hits Esther. And it creates a tense conversation between her and Mordecai. Esther gives an update basically to Mordecai and it says like, it's not as easy as me for her to talk to the king as he thinks. It says that she has not been summoned to the king in over 30 days. Just to be clear, this means that it's not that she sat with him and ruled with him and and made decisions with him. What this meant was that the king had not brought her into, into his bedroom for over a month. There is a distance between them and the one type of influence she had held over him, his physical desire for her, does not seem to be as powerful anymore as it once was. This isn't a matter of her just whispering in the king's ear about her desire for his help after some night of passion. Instead, she now realized that to even approach the king for help, to try and change his mind about a a decree that he had made could easily, at the very least, cost her her position like it did Vashti and ultimately could cost her her very life. She was in a precarious point just like Vashti was three chapters ago. She was either going to have to choose to betray her people and try to hide or to approach king and put herself in a very vulnerable position. And this is where Mordecai reminds her 
of the principle of what? God's promise of deliverance. I love what Mordecai says here, right? He doesn't just say, uh, well, if, if you don't do it, we're hopeless. He was like, if you don't do it, you know, God has promised his protection. And so it will rise up from somewhere else. But you can make a decision to be a part of it. There's a principle that we believe that God will protect his people. God will provide for his people. And so let's make decisions based on that beautiful promise and principle rather than just what's comfortable or even what might put us in a difficult situation in that moment. Mordecai was reminding her that it is better to make your decisions based on the principle of believing God's promises than responding to simple fear and frustration. But what's easier? To respond to the fear and frustration. How do you respond when you get put in a tough situation, when you know that a decision you make could put you in a vulnerable position? This is exactly where Esther is. And where Esther has to make a decision in this moment to operate off of principle or off of pride, off of keeping herself safe or of following a principle that she deeply believes in and that her people deeply believe in. It is so easy sometimes to cut ourselves off from truths and principles of God because they are often the most difficult and less self-preserving way of living. But what makes them that's what makes them unique and ultimately life-changing and life-giving not just for yourself but for others as well is that when we live in a way that is not just self-preserving but is living off of the promises of God it cannot just change our world it can change the world and this is where Esther eventually makes a decision she listens to Mordecai she is reminded of that principle And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther comes to her decision with resolve and determination. She is going to the king. This is a decision that requires a willingness to sacrifice. It is another queen's gambit, putting her out there to sacrifice for others. It isn't based out of a momentary passion or need of validation. Her decision brings clarity and direction uh, to be taken based on key principles that God loves his people and will provide deliverance for them. She doesn't know what will happen but she knows that she's what she should do. Too often, we try to make decisions based on the outcome we want instead of the principle it should be lived by. I would love to control every outcome, but I can't. So instead, my decision should be based on firm principles that give me solid ground to stand on, no matter the outcome. So compare and contrast. We talked about how the unprincipled king made decision. How does this principled queen Esther make decisions? One, she operated right off of accurate information versus just personal perception, our own desires. She got the whole picture. But then secondly, she had a willingness to sacrifice versus a need for fulfillment just to get what she wanted. And third, it was based on principles from God's wisdom versus self-serving counsel or validation. 
So how, we, how do we get ourselves in a better situation? Not by being an unprincipled decision maker, but being a principled decision making, having information, being willing to sacrifice, and having it based our, our response based on principles from God's wisdom. And instead of bringing confusion like the king did, do you know what this brought? Clarity and collaboration. I will go to the king. If I die, die. To do this with me. Fast together with me. It brought the people together. It did not create confusion. So, to close with, how do we, how do, we do this personally? Right? How do we put this into lives? And I want to walk us through a simple example today of how to develop principles from God's wisdom and truths from Scripture. There are teachings all throughout the Bible that give us principles and, and truths on how to make decisions, right? How to live. Just Ten Commandments, like the wisdom of Proverbs, the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, the writings of Paul, are all chock full of principles and, and truths of wisdom of God that have been revealed to us. It is not hidden. The wisdom of God is not hidden from us. So let's take just one of these very quickly. And I'm going to take one that we've actually gone through as a church uh, before, which is in uh, Colossians 3. It's a writing of Paul to the church in Colossians, and it's what uh, we read earlier. And it says, first of all, in verse 8, it says, but you must not put, the, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And then Colossians 3.12, instead put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Beautiful wisdom here. Don't do these five things. Put on these six things. Don't have anger. That doesn't mean you can't get angry about something, but just don't be easily agitated. Don't go around looking for a fight. Put away wrath, wanting to see people's lives destroyed and yours elevated. Put away malice where you're trying to push people down so you can get ahead, actually actively working against them. Put slander away that you're out damaging the character of other people and spewing as much hatred as you can. Put away obscenity, which are using words to elevate evil and instead of truth. Put those away. Like there's clear wisdom there, correct? But then he says, put on compassion. Right? Compassion isn't feeling bad for somebody. It's, it's helping, to, being a source of mercy for people. It says put on kindness. It's not just being kind to people that are kind to you, but it's showing forgiveness and being kind when somebody wrongs you. Show humility. And humility isn't thinking bad about yourself. It's like elevating and respecting other people. Put on meekness, which is not weakness, Instead, it's power under control is what meekness means. And it, it means that you will become a source of honor as you represent God fully to other people. Then put on patience. Patience is the ability to persist in these things, in kindness, in humility, in meekness, and in compassion. And it shows a source of faithfulness in our life. And it says, finally, then put on love. And love is allowing what is right to bring help, healing, and hope for everyone. It's a beautiful source of righteousness for us. So take these off, put these on. You know, four, four verses in Colossians that we could build and have built a whole sermon series around. Like you can go back and, and listen to it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to take that wisdom, right? And I'm going to live by that. I'll, I'll memorize Colossians 3, 
uh, 12 through 14, and I'm going to try to live that out. To me, principles have to take another step. It's not just reading wisdom. It's not just even agreeing with wisdom. I think most of us in this room would agree with this wisdom. Take these off and put these on. It's then actually putting it in a practical way to create a framework for decision-making in your life. So let me tell you how our family has done this over the years. Because it's great to read this and be like, yeah, I want to do more of that. But, but how do we make these principles give us footing to make the right decisions? Years ago, when, uh, when we first started having kids, when PJ was born, we realized, Katie and I, we began to talk like, uh, we're, we're parents. It's about to get crazy, right? Like, there are going to be things coming into our life that we can't handle, we know. Like, we have to raise this kid, and we're both raised in great homes and things like that. But we began to understand very quickly, we need to have some principles that we both operate off of. And we even use passages like this, Colossians 3, to build some of these that we would instill in our own decision-making and that we would try to instill in our family and our children's decision-making. And so we took the truth, this wisdom, and then intentionally sat down and created some intentional principles that became basically guideposts for us. And so out of passages like this, here are five things that we as a family have held on to. And you can ask, PJ has heard these from day one when he can probably hear. He, he does not have to, he knows exactly what's on these slides. Because that's part, now do, are we 100% perfect? Do we always operate by this? No, no, right? But they are our principles to make decisions from. And the first one is this, a right attitude determines the right action. We try to, as a family, that's a principle. If you're making bad decisions, it may be because you first have a bad attitude. So maybe correct the attitude first before we just try to do behavioral correction. Second, truth is always the best thing to say. Truth is always the best thing to say. To father, son, to brother, sister, to, to friends, to whatever. And this one's hard sometimes. Because truth is hard sometimes. It's easier to lie. But lie does nothing but erode trust and erode the ability to, to move forward. Third is this. Always be ready to give and receive forgiveness. Always be ready. And it's, it's easy sometimes to say, oh, I want to, okay, I can give you forgiveness. Sometimes it's harder for people to receive forgiveness. To actually feel like they can be forgiven. And for some it's harder to give it than to receive it. But always be ready. And that we use that always be ready to like be on the edge of your seat. When it's time to forgive, forgive. Get up and get, don't, you're not holding, it's not a weapon, it's not a tool that we use to control people. And number four, life isn't about what you can get, but what you can give. Live open-handedly. Live with the ready, whatever resource you have is a resource to be shared. And then finally, always value people over possessions. Things have no true value. It's people in our life that have value. And this is our framework. These are principles that we held onto that we use in decision-making. Again, do we go out of bounds sometimes? 100%. Yes, we do. But we, we, we know when we're out of bounds. And we know we get to bad situations because we pushed past the wisdom of God and past these principles. Which brings us back to that key idea again, right? The ability to make wise decisions is not found in our momentary feelings or frustrations, but on the predetermined principles that come from the wisdom of God. That's how we move forward. 
And what I continue as we close, what I continue to love about the story of Esther and how it reflects the work of God in our life. The people of Israel were in a desperate situation. They needed help. They needed a savior, someone who would willingly sacrifice on their behalf and seek favor for them. Someone who would act as the, on the principles of righteousness, kindness, compassion, and love. These are the exact same principles that drove God to provide a way of salvation for you and I. In the midst of our rebellious natures that often drive us into dark and difficult circumstances, <coughs> God in his righteousness, kindness, compassion, and love made a way for us to be redeemed or restored to a vibrant relationship with him, our creator. Jesus willingly sacrificed himself as payment for our sin, for our rebellion. He faced our adversary and rescued us from the clutches of sin and death and provided not just salvation, but right standing with God as we again became his children. And you can experience that salvation today. It is not something that, uh, that is just some far off story. It is a beautiful, living, active work of God in our life that we can experience these principled actions of our creator to restore us to him. My question for you today is this. What principles are guiding your decision making? What is it? Is it personal fulfillment? Are they, un, are they really non-principles? It's just whatever you're feeling at the moment or greed or lust or whatever it may be. Are you building your principles out of the beauty of God's wisdom? And instead of moving toward confusion in your life, allowing those principles to bring clarity into your life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close today? Just in this moment, I just want you to take a breath and think. Is there at least, is there one principle I'm holding on to when it comes to making tough decisions? When it comes to difficult moments of my life? Is there a love for others, a, a love for a spouse or a child that will drive those decision makings? Or is it, is it just personal preservation? And then ask yourself, where does that principle come from? Does it come from the wisdom of God? Or does it come from my own need to be self-validated and self-preserved? It is easy to live an unprincipled life. To live with principles takes work. It takes going through some incredible high moments and low moments in our life and realizing these principles are what allow us to celebrate in the highs and climb out of the lows. Father, it is your wisdom that we need today. Not, uh, not man's wisdom, not somebody's good ideas, not just something that we've heard from somewhere else. It, it is your wisdom, the truth of our creator that we need into our lives right now, poured into our lives so that we can become people that are principled decision makers, that operate out of a beautiful framework that you have given us to experience pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope in this life. God, drive that into our souls and into our hearts today.